ties into everything we've been wrestling with in this series we've been in, which we're calling High Definition. And we're asking, do we ever stop to question what we say and what it means? Because like he said, we grow up in, some of us, maybe not all of us, many of us have grown up in inclusive religious communities where we've used some words over and over and over again. And yet some of the research we're looking at is showing that we're using these words less and less and less. And I don't think it's for lack of knowledge like we've talked about. I don't think it's for lack of exposure. I think it's from overexposure. Again, we're using these words over and over and over again in our religious communities, which are beautiful things. But are we stopping to ask, wait, what does this really mean? And not just funny words like love offering, like ask these people what it means to love on somebody, right? <laughs> that phrase that we use in the church all the time. We're talking about serious words like gospel, grace, blessings, sin, salvation. There's a reason we're in this series, High Definition, and it's to do some spiritual CPR to some of these words and definitions that are either dead or disappearing from our vocabulary. And we've discussed in this, the last couple weeks this massive survey that was done through apparently Google's massive database of all these printed materials and, and posted to the internet materials from the year 1500 to 2008. And so they ran... 50 religious words like fruits of the spirit, like character, like modesty, like grace, and they ran them through this database, and they found that 74% of these words were used less in the last 100 years than before. And we're not just talking like by like 2% or 3%, by over 50%. So our religious vocabulary, our religious words, and the use of those words has been cut in half. And some of it is what we already talked about. Words are being used again and again without reflection, and then when it's time to speak to somebody, like these people at these tables, and you're going to talk about the gospel, you think, wait, what is the gospel? How do I define that for somebody? Or you talk about grace, or you begin to talk about blessings, or sin, or salvation. Like, how do I even define that for somebody who's never even grasped this topic before? But maybe for others of us, it's just the reality that, that God and his word doesn't really define our day-to-day, -day, so the definition of these words doesn't much matter to us. But whatever group you fall into, I'm hoping this summer series will be a blessing to each one of us, that God will speak to each one of us, because the underlying thought beneath it is that the definition of our words can make a world of a difference. And the quote that we've quoted each week is by the poet Christian Wyman, who asked the question, he poses the question, does the decay of belief among educated people in the West precede the decay of language used to explore and define belief, or do we sense the fire of belief fading in us only because the words are sodden with overuse and imprecision and will not burn? And maybe you're just thinking, this dude's a poet, so clearly he's just putting too much weight on words. But you look at the Bible. Proverbs 18.21 says, words can bring death or life. Words are powerful. And we so often make that about the fruit of our conversations and the, and the totality of what we say. But what about each word? When we lose our spiritual vocabulary, when we lose these words and the meanings within them, it can lead to this decay of belief instead of life. And again, we've talked about it. This series is not about redefining words or redefining truth, but returning to the words and elevating definitions that have become shallow or forgotten. It's about giving words life again by reclaiming their definitions to the words we no longer consider or the words we no longer use. So tonight, the word is creed. So pretend I'm like John Christ without the weird hair, and I'm just, the word creed. You're somebody, what does that bring to mind? The Apostles' Creed. 90s rock band. <laughs> Scott Stapp. 
the Sailor's Creed, right? All kinds of creeds. Assassin's Creed, thank you. <laughs> what about the character from The Office who's like a sociopath? Can't remember anybody's name, right? You got that. The movie, the boxing movie, from my money, one of the better sports movies of this century. What was that? Exactly, Apollo Creed, Adonis Creed, his son, those movies. Creed, I like them. And then, of course, yeah, Creed, the, the guilty pleasure rock band that you enjoy from the shadows and don't tell anybody about. <laughs> Creed. Because, like, literally this week, I was like, Steph, I think it was Wednesday when I was working on my sermon. I was like, Steph, I'm working on this sermon on the word Creed, and I can't get this song out of my head. And I was like, I'm going to play it. And she's, I quote her. She said, oh, no, please don't do that. All right, because she was assuming I was about to turn on uh, Scott Stapp and, and Creed and just start blasting that in the house. But how many of you guys have heard of Rich Mullins? Right? Anthony's all about that Keith Green. I'm a little more about that Rich Mullins. We talk about these, these people that wrote worship music like decades ago. And it's because my parents raised me on Rich Mullins. And they played this song Creed over and over and over again. Actually, the guy that produced that music video, yes, there were music videos back then on VHS. His name was Ben Pearson. His son, Derek Pearson, when I was like five, I considered him my best friend. And uh, so the music video for the song Creed is he's out in this field, much like these fields, and he's playing the hammer dulcimer, which is kind of like a, a harp turned on its side, and you play it with some sticks, and uh, he's singing these words, and he says, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth. And he sings through, musically, the Apostles' Creed, also known as the Nicene Creed. And just a fair warning, I'll probably call it both tonight, and it's known as both. <laughs> but the name of the song really didn't mean anything to me. I didn't know what a creed was. It could have been called, like, croissant, and I still would have liked the song and enjoyed the song and enjoyed the words all the same. Because my parents raised me in a church where we didn't say creeds, we didn't talk about creeds, uh, so I didn't know what they were. The concept in my life had pretty much been retired. But I want to talk about the idea, what they are, the definition of creeds tonight, because I believe it will elevate what we, how we believe. You know, belief is another word that I don't think we pause to consider. What, what's belief? What does it mean? How is it different than knowledge? How does it inform our faith? And I believe that considering creeds tonight will elevate our belief. That in a culture that values questioning and shrugging off truth, creeds point to the supremacy of Scripture and the supreme value of Scripture. And I should note that there are many creeds, right? There's the Sailor's Creed. There's creeds throughout the church, throughout centuries that have been written. Some forgotten, right, that we'll never remember, but others that are recorded. There's a lot of creeds. But I've long had the Nicene Creed, also known as the Apollo, Apollo's Creed. <laughs> Apostles' Creed. Memorized just thanks to that song by Rich Mullins that my parents played over and over again when I was a kid. And so the whole thing reads, and I'm going to read it. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So if you were raised in a liturgical background, you probably just felt like this refreshing wave of nostalgia, right? Over like, yes, I love this. 
Some of you, if you just walked in off the street, you're like, what kind of backwoods Harry Potter incantation are we doing up in here? Right? Like if you just know nothing about the Bible. But if you were raised in the church, maybe a different stream that never recited creeds, you might be thinking, can we, can we do this? Like, the elders clear? We can talk about creeds. We can say creeds. Can, yeah. But I think sometimes creed gets kind of tossed in the basket with other dirty words like ritual and uh, religion. You remember the spoken word Jesus versus religion from like five to ten years ago? By Jefferson Bethke. I think that's how you say his name. It was good. If I had a dollar for every time, because I was in youth ministry at the time, if I had a dollar for every time somebody posted that to my Facebook wall, the, like, month it came out, I'd be on the Forbes list. <laughs> and it's a, great, it's a great poem. It's a great spoken word. But it's, and, and Jefferson Bethke is talented. He's a great person. It's just a false choice. Because we pit Jesus against religion again and again and again, but it's a false choice. And that's another installment of this series for another day, just how we define religion. But religion, its definition is a system and tradition of worship. And this is key tonight in our discussion of creeds and everything we're going to be talking about. Tradition is not bad. Tradition is not bad. Unbiblical tradition is bad. That's a problem. I mean, hopefully this is news to nobody. Worship is good. Amen? Those too silent on that. Worship is good. Systems of worship, also good. God spends entire books in the Old Testament giving the Israelites how to worship, step by step, command by command, a system of worship. He cares. Ask Aaron's son how it worked out when they just ignored those commands and uh, did what they wanted. God cares about how we worship. And listen to this New Testament, New Covenant, A.D., after Christ's resurrection verse in the book of James. It's James 1, verses 26 through 27. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. He says, but religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion isn't like the enemy of Jesus. It's not Jesus versus religion. Religion is the goal, just the pure and faultless variety. But see what we see in Galatians, which is where I want to turn tonight, Galatians chapter 1. And I want to read verses 6 through 9 and kind of look at what Pete, or Paul is dealing with in Galatians. Because he's dealing with a supremely uh, jacked up variety of religion. Where religion and the gospel had gone off the rails. Paul writes to the church in Galatians, and I want to read again chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And this is like right off the jump in this letter. He says, I am astonished. That you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, and let them be under God's curse. Let's pray real quick. Lord God, we ask that you would use your word tonight, God, to speak to us, to shape our perspective of you, and help us to love you more. Holy Spirit, we know if your word speaks, it's because you're talking. We know if sermons transform, it's because you're active. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be in our hearts, be in our mind. We give you permission to shift our perspectives, change the way we think, Lord God, so that we can worship you better with our lives. And everybody said. Amen. So the word creed is, is Latin. 
It's got this Latin origin, and what it means is I believe. The word creed means I believe, and maybe you would say, well, I believe the Bible. Some would say no creed but the Bible. You know, we don't need creeds. But the reality is this, the Bible with which we receive the gospel, the gospel with which Paul is giving his life in these epistles, uh, preaching and defending, comes from the Bible, which is roughly one million words long. The Bible's a big book. (laughs) And it's easy as individuals to read through it and kind of pick and choose what we want to take from here, maybe never even read this bit over here, and do what we've talked about just earlier this year, create this copy and paste faith where it's kind of like a buffet. We take what we like and leave what we don't like, right? But creeds, creeds are by definition in Webster's Dictionary a brief authoritative formula or religious belief. And then the example in the dictionary is the Nicene Creed, the most well-known one. But again, there's countless creeds. There's ones that are on record. There's ones we've long forgotten. Uh, In case you think they aren't biblical, there's there's a creed in Philippians. There's a creed in 1 Timothy 3 that Paul includes in these letters. But again, the most common creed, the one that the dictionary points to as the creed, is the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. It's the one that gets songs named after it. And Rich Mullins sings through in a field on a hammer dulcimer. Right? It's, it's 100 words. So these 100 words gives us the cliff note summary of the million words in the Bible. Not to replace Scripture. Right? Every word of the Bible is inspired and important, but creeds have been used in history to educate And to make clear, Martin Luther once said, Christian truth could not be put into shorter and clearer statement than these 100 words. And it's the standard for orthodoxy in the Roman church, the Eastern church, Anglican churches, as well as others. And the purpose for any creed, all these different creeds, is to get at what is the core of being a Jesus follower? What beliefs make up the essence? What's the unquestionable, unshakable foundation of following Jesus Christ? And This is kind of why creeds have fallen out of style in our culture, because in our culture, there's nothing more offensive than being dogmatic. With our culture's broken definition of tolerance, just about anything but certainty that demands obedience from others is allowed. Our culture's creed is do what makes you happy as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Do what makes you happy as long as it's not hurting anybody. Boils down to behavior, right? Just don't hurt anyone. But what you believe determines how you behave. And the Apostles' Creed lays the foundation for belief for a Christ follower. It's consolidation used for education. So so kids in different streams of faith will memorize creeds because they learn what Scripture says in them. But at the same time, it's consolidation, but it also kind of expands on the baptismal formula we see in the Great Commission. Who's the Father? says, I believe in God the Father. Who's the Son? I believe in Jesus Christ. And what's the deal with the Holy Spirit? It's not... Just educational, though, it's also unifying these creeds. And I want to hit on three ways quickly before we jump into Galatians. Three ways that just the creed has unified the church throughout history. The first is the the unity that comes from clarity. The unity that comes from clarity. We agree on these things. We're family, right? We can debate the other stuff here, and then we're going to go on to find out who was right in heaven. But the issue in the Galatian church that Paul is addressing in this passage we read and are about to turn to it's the same kind of legalism we experience today that builds barriers between denominations, groups, and opinions. Right? Our culture is just as good or better at building walls as it is building bridges. But in a culture of division, creeds can serve as this gentle reminder that we often agree on more than we actually disagree on. But so often in our culture and in our conversations, we major in the minors and minor in the majors. 
which is a common saying, meaning we just get so caught up in the small issues, it robs us of the unity that we would find in the big ones. Creeds like the Apostles' Creed remind us, again, of the truths we find unity in by making them clear. The second way, though, that the creeds unify is they're worldwide. They're global. Like, <laughs> I was reading an article. I think it was actually a YouTube uh, short clip about creeds, and, and, uh, and somebody commented, like, I, I disagree with this categorically. I'm not a Catholic. I don't have Catholic beliefs. But she just needed a higher definition of the word Catholic. That's lowercase Catholic. It means universal. It means global. It means worldwide. And the same reason I want to share about what's going on in China and the mission work there is the same reason we spend, send trips to the DR to see what's being done there for food for the hungry, like the one we just got back from. Because we may get caught up in these four walls and this zip code, but God is on the move all over the world. Right? Jesus is on the move all over the world changing lives. The gospel is being preached. Right? God says of Jesus in Isaiah, and it's echoed in Acts, that I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's doing just that. And just how these prophecies were quoted and echoed throughout history, the last way that the creed unifies is it's historic. It was written in the 300s as a rebuttal to the heresy that claimed Jesus wasn't both fully God and fully man. And these words have been spoken for centuries and centuries. And when we speak them, we join with people who are now cheering us on from heaven, who we link arms and spirits with when we speak these words as a declaration of faith. And it's powerful because we get our turn at the wheel now, right? We have our turn at the wheel as the church. And in our culture that tries to turn away from any truth that would demand obedience, scripture, the Bible, is this map that keeps us steering straight. And a creed is like cliff notes. So Paul uses creeds in multiple epistles. Again, there's one in Philippians, there's one in 1 Timothy. So why would we go to Galatians where there's none? <laughs> and it's because Galatians topples two issues and two sides of the same coin that creeds grapple with as well. And they're legalism and lawlessness, right? Legalism and lawlessness. Legalism, we're familiar with lawlessness just being this idea that in response to legalism, we should cast off all laws, all traditions, all, quote, religion. Well, first, legalism, because it's the chief issue that Paul is tackling in Galatians when he writes chapter 1 and he says in verse 9, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Those are some potent words. And Galatians is notable because it's the one letter to a church. Like Paul, I think I, was like, I think Steph calls it the sandwich. I call it the Oreo one. When you're going to correct somebody, like you encourage them on the front end. You're a great person. You're doing great things in life. God has a plan and purpose for you. And then you... After that, you hit him with the correction. You are screwing up. Just kidding. <laughs> but that's what you see Paul do often in these letters. Like when he writes Corinthians, they had some messed up things. That was a long letter of things he's addressing. But he starts with the, like, you guys are awesome. Right? I love you guys. I can't wait to visit you guys again. In Galatians, he says, no, I don't even have time for that. I don't even have time for this, this Oreo thing. Right? This is too serious. Why? Because legalism for the Jews in this region hadn't just become a problem. As he says in this passage, it had become another gospel altogether. Not Christ alone cornerstone, but Christ plus this and that. Specifically here, circumcision and eating the right food, right? Kosher eating. Their primary concern was two cultural practices that separated Jew from Gentile. Again, circumcision and kosher food laws. They weren't just converting people. They were looking to nationalize people. 
So it wasn't just surrender to Christ and be saved, but it was join our group and be saved. And this spits on the beauty of the gospel where unity is found in diversity, not uniformity. That's why Paul writes in Galatians the powerful verse where it says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's response is that this legalistic practice isn't the gospel. It's a different gospel altogether. For Paul, it wasn't just problematic. It was heresy. He says, look, if somebody preaches something that adds to the gospel like this, even if it's myself, they can be damned. That's bold. Spicy. It's fiery, right? At first, it may raise our eyebrows because, again, he doesn't compliment them first. He jumps right in, and it's in our scripture. But, you know, in our culture, behind keyboards, behind monitors, we kind of love this. Our Christian subculture has a whole niche that loves to paint people as heretics. You name a prominent pastor that you've seen posted on Facebook, there is a Twitter account and website just dedicated to painting them as false teachers and heretics. And it's not just prominent pastors. Pastor Fred and I both on, online have been called false teachers in the past. You think it's bad for us, it's even worse for, for women. Like, ask Beth Moore how she's doing. It's crazy right now. But this isn't new. Didn't happen with Twitter or social media. It's happened throughout history. William Tyndale, the first to translate the Bible into English, right, seeking to reach the English with the gospel, was condemned as a heretic, stripped of the priesthood, and burned at the stake. Look at from Martin Luther to Martin Luther King Jr. There were people that called them heretics. Look at Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh who we worship. He died for being a heretic. The big one, right, he claimed to be God. Kind of a big deal. But he also pushed back against unbiblical tradition and broken religion. Again, the problem isn't tradition. The problem isn't religion. It's when it goes off the rails. And it's not the pure religion that God desires. But we don't burn people at the stake anymore, praise God. But we cancel them, as they like to say, drag them on social media, shun them in our Christian subculture for anything from their stance on the spiritual languages and tongues to women in ministry, They think different than us. They're a false teacher. They're a heretic. They can turn or burn. Jesus says that the world will know us, his followers, his disciples, the church, by our love for one another. Instead of unity, we often drift into divisiveness. And instead of known for love, we're often known for our pettiness. Just walk up to those tables of people that John Christus were asking what Christians are known for. And it's because heresy hunting can get sticky because sometimes there's no locked and loaded Standard for heresy. Again, at the time Paul wrote Galatians, the one that were causing all the trouble that Paul's addressing believed that to reject circumcision or to eat certain foods was heretical. You could go to hell for that. This is why the Jerusalem Council happened. If you want to read on this, it happens in your Bible in the book of Acts in chapter 15 to address these same issues, to define the major truths and remind the growing church that minor issues shouldn't keep us from unity and worshiping God together. This is also where creeds come in. So many creeds were written at different councils throughout history. They turn our focus from the minors and return them to the majors again, the heart of God, the heart of Scripture. They join us across denominations, again, across borders, really across history. They produce this reminder that we have more in common than we often think, that in a culture where we're addicted to drawing lines in the sand, there's common ground of belief that a lot of us stand on. They remind us of the supremacy of Scripture, the love of God that makes us all brothers and sisters, his children. So when we disagree, we don't have to kill each other. We can disagree in love. 
They remind us that these foundational beliefs of Scripture, the ones that we cling to, they're not going to be shaken in the name of progression, progressing to the next truth. No, they're truth. Because in our progressive culture, again, we push the pendulum often from legalism into lawlessness. Let's punt law and religion and tradition because, well, legalism is bad. Now, you might have heard the Apostles' Creed or, or we're reading it on the screen. You're like, yeah, who would disagree with any of that? Right, but there was a survey that uh, LifeWay Research did. I think it was like two years ago. I think it was called The Temperature of the Church in America. And they, they found out that, again, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians in North America, so Canada and the U.S., and more than half of these Christians denied that Jesus was God in the flesh. More than half thought that the Holy Spirit was a power but not a person. More than half believed that worshiping alone is just as valid as being a part of a church. More than half didn't think the Bible as a whole was the word of God or that it's all true completely. Like it's all history. Some of it's fabricated, made up, not true. So it's no surprise that these same people in this survey didn't think the Bible spoke to ethical issues because it has no authority. We don't want it to have authority because authority is bad. To peddle truth is intolerant. At least that's what our culture feeds us. And that's why what's in vogue uh, this past decade or so in our Christian subculture is what you could call a deconversion story. Somebody that's found Christ, they've been in the church for a long time. But the starting block, like the introduction of these books, the start of these stories, is this awakening that involves questioning what one has long believed in the church. And with this awakening comes the assertion that certainty is not consistent with the way religion should work. And those who have a deep conviction about the truth of our beliefs, beliefs need to be open to repenting and humbling ourselves and open to questioning the interpretations we have of the Bible. Now, you read the introduction of these books and you're like, yeah, I could get with this. And then you realize after a while it just caves in on itself. Because it quickly goes off the rail. If we're required to be uncertain in our interpretation of the Bible, then what can we be certain of? What in the creed can we actually be certain of? All doctrines and creeds are uncertain. The divinity of Jesus, his resurrection from the dead, the forgiveness of sins. But none of these authors or thinkers want to write that off. It just reveals this selective commitment to questioning. The appeal to uncertainty is often just used to justify a new belief, one's, one's own truth. Because again, we're in a culture where it's my truth and your truth and his truth and her truth. We don't want a truth, the God of truth that demands obedience, that doesn't fit well in our culture. Now, maybe I've lost you, but let me bring you back. Uh, Dean laughed at me. Tyler actually has one of these in his car. He's taking it to Goodwill. Luckily, we didn't get rid of ours because it'll, it'll work tonight for a sermon illustration. Being a father of an only child that has like thousands too many toys sometimes comes in handy. Uh, but this is Raj's, and there's a story from Raj's culture in India. Maybe you've heard it, where, where five blind men walk into a bar. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's the American joke, right? Five blind men in this story, they come up a, a, across an elephant, and uh, none of them have ever seen an elephant, experienced an elephant, because they're blind, and, and apparently they've never gone outside. They've never experienced an elephant. So all five of them approach the elephant, and, and they're, they're, they're just touching the elephant, like, what is this thing? And so afterwards, the five people are asked, what is an elephant? And the one that was messing with the trunk was like, it's like a, it's like a snake. It's like a python. That's what an elephant is. And the other one that was just 
touching the leg and feeling the leg was like, it's like a tree trunk, man. It's solid. Uh, it, it's round. And then the other one who's, who's touching the side of the elephant is like, it's like a wall. This thing is huge. It's like, it's like just a big old wall. This is what an elephant is like. And so each one of these people had a different experience with the elephant. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to keep doing that. But the analogy is used by skeptics to say that one religion can't hold all truth and reality. That, that each religion in the world, each one of these big religions is just experiencing God in a different way. It's a different part of the elephant. So no one religion sees reality and sees God completely. But this analogy collapses on itself because it's told by someone who's not blind. And what attempts to come off as like a humble, oh, nobody really knows, nobody can really see, is spoken from a prideful assertion of being able to see what nobody else has been able to see in these religions and in history. But here's the thing. If we believe scripture, we believe that God doesn't just see all reality and all of the proverbial elephant. He created all reality. He created the proverbial elephant. And scripture says that on this side of heaven, we see spiritual reality dimly, right? Dim, like we're blind, groping uh, an elephant, trying to figure out what we are dealing with here. Sometimes if we're honest, it feels like that. That's why we cling to scripture, right? God's revealed word, it reveals the elephant in its completion to us. It's why we cling to the Holy Spirit who guides us in it. And this is why we come together as a church and we cling to fellowship. Because there's other perspectives, other experiences that can speak to our experience. It's why the churches come together again and again throughout history, and it's created creeds to educate, to make clear, to cling to the heart of Scripture so we aren't stuck feeling around this elephant lost or misguided. But, you know, a lot of Christians today would say that the legislation or regulation of anything is modern-day legalism because we as believers, we should be led by the Spirit. We're just led by the Spirit. But we forget that the Holy Spirit wasn't given to us by God to guide us in our feelings. Like Jesus didn't say that the Spirit of feels will come, and when he does, he will lead you in all your feels. No, he says the Spirit of truth will come, and he will guide us in all truth. The New Testament clearly contains timeless truths, commandments, and doctrine, and hard lines in the sand for believers. Again, Paul's problem with the church in Galatians, it's not the application of laws or regulations, but because the way they did it, why they did it, it supplanted the sufficiency of Christ and the centrality of the Holy Spirit, which is timeless, eternal. It's never going to go away. The fact that Jesus' sacrifice was enough yesterday, it's going to be enough tomorrow, it's going to be enough forever. That we don't have to do anything more to come to him. And then once we've received this salvation, we don't have to do any more to add to it. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty and truth of the gospel that's timeless and it's eternal and it doesn't change. Again, we've talked about in the conclusion of every sermon in this series that in John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Speaking about Jesus Christ, it's speaking about God. There was one word that's preeminent. When we talk about definitions and how we consider words, how you consider God and how you define God and how you see God and how you see your relationship with God, that affects everything. Your relationship with God, the way you see yourself, your relationship with billions of people with us on the planet. 
But if there was an application tonight, it would be this, that the creed starts with the words, I believe. Those are the first two words of the creed, I believe. Again, creed in Latin means I believe. And again, belief is a word that I think sometimes we don't pause enough to define. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess and are saved. So belief is important. What is belief? Is it something I know to be true? See, the creed doesn't start with the word, I know. I know God the Father was the creator of heaven and earth. You know, in our culture, we, we have so many ways to be informed about people. Gossip columns, TMZ, Sports Center, athletes, singers, actors, where we know a lot about them, but we don't know them. And that's why when you meet that singer you love or that, that dancer you adore or that musician, you've been listening to their music for decades, you get tongue-tied because you don't know them. You know of them, but you don't know them. Like, I, I, I ran into Troy Aikman, like, last year. I know all about this guy's life. You know, I've, I've read part of his autobiography, yet I don't have anything to say to the guy because I don't know him. He doesn't know me at all. So I was like, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to shake your hand and keep it moving. You know, sometimes I think many of us, we know information about God, but we're not walking in intimacy with God. Right? We gain knowledge, but we never walk in belief. I mean, think about it. How many times in life, maybe right now, do you know something you should be doing? Or you know something you shouldn't be doing? But that doesn't really help you not do it. You just keep doing it or not doing it. Trust me, I've learned one thing in pastoring. If that's you, you're not alone. Take comfort in that. But some would also say, oh, I believe in Jesus, right? I confess it right now. Jesus is Lord, right? Because we know God exists. We know what scripture says. We know what we've learned in church. But do you believe it? Again, in Romans 10, 9, Paul says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. He doesn't say it's, it's with your head that you know and then you confess. It's with your heart that you believe. See, knowledge may or may not lead to action. But belief by definition, when you believe something in your heart, you hold it in your heart, it affects your behavior. If I could have the worship team come up, Again, the, the creed has been used throughout history. All these different creeds have been used for education, which is true. But it's also more than knowledge. It's about belief. It starts with, I believe. Look, we gain, we all, most of us, we're schooled, hopefully at some point. <laughs> and uh, you could go through all 12 grades, graduate high school. You've learned all the same knowledge, mostly as all the different people in your class. But you don't behave all the same. Because you may have the same knowledge, but you have different beliefs. And it's beliefs that inform behavior. Belief is important. Doing is important, right? Faith without works is dead. But the same way that the creed doesn't start with, I know, the creed also doesn't start with, I do. It doesn't start with, I do. This is where the church in Galatians went off the rails. This is why Paul wrote this letter that we have in our Bibles. Because the gospel proclaims, again, that we don't have to do anything to receive salvation, except as Paul says, believe, have faith. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The Galatians fell into this trap of Jesus plus something else, Jesus plus something I do, Jesus plus circumcision, and then you're saved. 
But we don't do in order to be saved. We do because we were saved. Because Jesus paid it all, there's nothing left to pay for. There's no tab that we have to cover in order to receive salvation. But all to him I owe. So when I give him my heart, it's not just a piece of my life. It's not a compartmentalized part. No, all to him I owe. So I don't just owe him like 15 minutes in the morning of devotions or 90 minutes on the weekend of worship. No, all to him I owe. All my life. And I give it. But tonight, if we could stand, I want to give God our worship. But before that, I want to give you an opportunity for ministry. We've got people that would love to pray for you. Because maybe your belief, your personal creed, right, your system that you operate by, it starts with, I know. I know Jesus exists. I know the Bible. I've read it through. I know what I've learned in class from grade school into my adult life. I know what's been preached to me. I, I know a lot. But, you know, some of us, I've heard it said, we'll miss heaven by 18 inches. Because what we have up here never makes it, it affects our heart. And I know for me, until I was 21, my parents raised me in church. Again, they raised me listening to Rich Mullins over and over again. I listened to a little Keith Green, shout out to Anthony. But uh, if I would have died at 20, I would have missed heaven by 18 inches. Because I had all this knowledge. I knew things. I knew all the stories in the Bible. I could tell you the story of Jonah. I could tell you what happened in David's life. I knew Jesus existed, but it didn't affect my life in the least. Because I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it in my heart to where it actually affected my behavior. And if that's you tonight, then man, let Jesus take that 18-inch journey from your brain to your heart. Let the Holy Spirit begin to do a work and make you a new creation tonight. It's one thing to know about Jesus, but there is so much life, eternal life, not just in length, but depth, that you step into. When you say, Jesus, I believe, and I want my belief to affect my behavior. I want to follow your commands. I want to follow your truth. Your life changes forever. But maybe, and I believe it's, it's probably pretty common in this room, your creed doesn't start with I know, but often our creed, whether we realize it or not, it starts with I do that our identity is so often tied up into what we do. We think that we have to somehow earn God's love. And if we had a good week, then I can walk into God's presence freely. If I had a bad week though, you know, I kinda gotta walk on eggshells. When your creed starts with I do instead of Jesus did, it's like a paper mache foundation rather than Jesus the cornerstone because a bad week can just topple everything. A bad year, addiction, habits can topple everything. Because your perspective of God and what you believe is so tied up in what you do. But, man, let the, the truth that Paul writes in Galatians just wash over you that Jesus paid it all. It's not Jesus plus what you do. Jesus' grace is enough. It's the all-sufficient sacrifice. So you, your, your faith doesn't have to start with I do. It starts with I believe. Again, in Romans 10, it says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Maybe just as we sing this song, you just need to sing these words and, and let the reality of these words, maybe you just recited them as words off a screen in worship before. Let them wash over who you are, the way you see God, the way you see yourself. And when those things are transformed, it's going to transform the way you see the world. God, we know that you put us here in this region for a reason. 
We thank you for what you're doing in China, people being baptized, people's lives being transformed. But we know you put us here in this region to do those same things so that your gospel, so that Jesus Christ can be made known. But Jesus, we know it starts with us. It starts with our hearts. It starts with our beliefs. And God, I pray that you would uh, help them to align with your word, your reality, your perspective tonight of you, God the Father, and us, your sons and daughters. Help us to feel your love, your grace, and your mercy. Shake off any perspective that's not of you, Lord God, as we sing these words in Jesus' name. If you need prayer, I'll be here. Caitlin and Emily are back there. Otherwise, let's worship and sing.